Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Welcome to Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm Ann Duane, co-founder and partner, joined by Lucas Bagno, an investor here at Village Global. We're delighted to have with us today Julio Vasconcelos, managing partner at Atlantico, a Latin American-focused venture capital firm, and he's also co-founder and partner at Canary, a seed stage firm focused on Brazil. Julio and his team published the famous yearly Latin American Digital Transformation Report, which is 120 pages of goodness, and we'll talk more about that today. Prior to investing, Julio was CEO and founder of Peixermano and Prefer. He was Facebook's first country lead for Brazil and an EIR at Benchmark Capital. So without further ado, let's ask the first question, Lucas. Right. Julio, thank you so much for being with us today. So today we hope to cover the past, the present, and the future of tech in the venture landscape in LATAM. But before we get to, to that, these past few weeks, at least here in, the, here in the United States, everybody's talking about how crazy the venture landscape is. And would love to get your perspective on how you see the venture landscape in Latin America today. Is it as crazy as it seems to be here? And what is your, if you could give us a brief overview of how you view that, that would be great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for having me on. It's I'm a I'm a big listener, so it's a pleasure to be on. To give just some context of how recent things in the venture landscape are in Latin America, I moved back for the first time in 2010. Let's say about 10 years ago. To, to you know, at that point, I was working at Facebook, but had the intention of starting my own company, Peixurbano, which I did that spring. And when I went out to raise money for Peixurbano, there was one venture fund in existence in Latin America. So everything that you see today, all the funds that you see today, 10 years ago, which is the typical life of a VC fund, none of them existed. So it gives you a good sense of just how rapid the evolution has been from basically nothing to what it is today, which is a pretty vibrant uh, venture ecosystem. That said, compared to a market like the US, it's very, very nascent. It's tiny, right? You probably have half a dozen relevant funds, which is one one hundredth of what you have in a place like the US or China. So although from our perspective, things here are red are red hot and you know growing a ton and super active. We're still only a, a tiny fraction, I think, of the activity and I think perhaps even of the of the craziness that you might see in a more developed market like the US. And then we've seen a major spike in US-based venture capital funding coming into LATAM, right? A couple of years ago, A6NZ used to be just a US-focused fund. Now they've published a thesis on the space. Sequoia has done the same. We at Village Global have also increased the number of deals we've done in the space. We did Adi a few years ago. That was one of our first LATAM-based investments. This year, we've already done two deals in Brazil and a couple of other in the region. What has changed? Why now do we have all of this interest, not, not only from new nascent firms in the region, but also from these giants here, here in the United States? Yeah, and I think and I think your observation is is quite correct and sort of is backed up by the data, right? When you when you look at just the trend of uh, venture investing in Latin America, it's been roughly doubling every year. And if you if you compare actually 2021 to 2020, middle of this year, roughly, we had already had double the volume of all of last year's venture investment. So we're probably on track to do something like 4x what we saw last year. And that's both the, the local firms growing, right? You have more funds and the, and the existing funds getting bigger. But as you mentioned, more and more international attention from all over the world. And I think that specifically about the international attention, I think what's happened is that you're really starting to see the birth and I think the growth of the first Latin American unicorns. You know, you mentioned in the introduction that I, I, I'm a founder of Canary, the the preeminent seed fund here in the region. We started Canary in 2017. At that point, only four years ago, there were zero unicorns in Latin America. The first ones were, were really minted in the beginning of 2018, only three years ago. And we're probably on track to having 20 in Brazil, probably by the, by the end of this year, and probably something closer to 30 or so in the region. And all that's happened in three years. And I think once you start having companies like that, 
minted every year. And I think the size of those companies also kind of sort of getting bigger and bigger, that 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 obviously attracts a lot of attention. You have probably the largest unicorn in the region, Nubank, you know, being quoted as, not, not quoted, but sort of sp- uh, the, the market believes that when it goes out, you know, for its you know, initial public offering, you know, either this year or next year, that it could be worth as much as $100 billion, right? But we're talking definitely about numbers that are $50 billion or more. You have multiple other companies that are sort of around that sort of $10 billion dollar valuation mark. So it's not only the unicorns, but it's the decacorns and, you know, soon to be centicorns that are going to be are going to be uh, growing in the region. And I think any global fund has to be looking at that and trying to think about how do I how do I play in that market? How do I get a piece of that? And I think that's really what's been attracting more and more volume of, of investment from abroad. Julia, the, the stats on the unicorns are shocking. And you mentioned the prospect of IPO for some of these companies. And can you talk a little bit more about what you see for exits these days? That, that's a, a great question, because I think that was a, a huge question mark for all the funds and honestly, for all the entrepreneurs in the region that mostly LPs would would raise thinking about, look, we've seen a bunch of companies, you know, grow and expand but what's what's going to happen in terms of exits right and, and i think what we always said was that look the the large and and sustainable companies that are going to be leaders in their industry ultimately those companies are going to go out and they're going to become large independent public companies they're going to go public they're going to go public either locally or internationally and then you're going to have a second group of companies that's probably going to you know going to be acquired and those are going to be interesting exits but until we had the first examples that was only theoretical right and and i think as i mentioned the first unicorns were a mix of those. In 2018, you had uh, 99, which is a local ride-hailing competitor, were being bought by Didi for a billion dollars. So that was sort of a billion-dollar M&A transaction. You had a couple of other local uh, technology companies, namely Stone and Pagasugura, which are two fintechs going public in the, in the U.S. markets, right? So the, these were U.S. IPOs on the Nasdaq and New York Stock Exchange. You know, companies that you know that are being traded today at you know ten to 10, twenty billion dollar ranges. So you started to see that this promise of IPOs and billion dollar M&A transactions was very real. And today we have more and more examples of that happening, both of companies going public and I think also of the IPO pipeline being more and more robust. I think the other thing that has also happened is that the local stock market has actually been quite quite a good you know, way of companies going, going public. In particular, the the São Paulo stock exchange, right, the, the Brazilian public stock market. And, and you've seen over the last year, you know, over 10 company, over a dozen companies going public locally. These companies tend to be a little smaller in terms of their valuation compared to their U.S. peers. The U.S. peers, you know, VTEX that went public earlier this year is, is almost $10 billion. The local out of Uruguay is also over, is always nearly $20 billion. But the ones that go public in Brazil, they're usually valuations between $500 million to $1 billion, which although they may not be as massive uh, hits, but these are actually pretty good liquidity events for companies that a lot of times were invested in at, at pretty low valuations. And the fact that there is now a path to exit, a path to liquidity, is something that we never had before. And I think it's very reassuring for investors thinking about the next crop of startups. And that is wonderful for the ecosystem too. If some of that capital from those founders is reinvested in the angel ecosystem and really the flywheel begins. And for founders who may be pitching VCs or investors backing companies in the region, what's your advice for thinking about building businesses in different countries versus the region? So Brazil versus Brazil plus Colombia and Mexico and Uruguay. The first thing to to understand is that Latin America is, is not a single region, right? Every country is very different. The culture is very different and the laws are very different. So although when you look at the whole region and you sort of sum up the whole GDP and population, it seems very impressive. I think depending on the company and the model, some models are more internationalizable or or, or, or can expand regionally easier than, than others. So I think that's a, it's a key thing to understand. Maybe one of the biggest sort of cultural differences is just the very fact that Brazil speaks Portuguese and everyone else speaks Spanish. So you already have a, a, a pretty you know, meaningful cultural and and language barrier to expansion within within the region that I, I wouldn't uh, underestimate. The, the other thing also is that there are some models that 
because the 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 nature of a lot of the countries and I think sort of the the economies are are similar that are actually internationalizable. They're not they're not easy to do so, but it's much easier, for example, for a Mexican company to expand into Latin America or a Brazilian company even to expand to a neighboring country than for oftentimes a, a U.S. or European uh, player to enter because there's cultural barriers, there are structural barriers, there's talent barriers that I think make a, a, a local or regional winner much more likely. So I would, so those are maybe the two caveats, one, one pro, one against. I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, I would very much try to think about how do you build a company that if you win in your local market, and by local market, I mean your, your country, that that can be a big enough opportunity, right? And that's kind of phase one is that you win, you build a big company, it's a, it's a big market, there's a lot of uh, value to be unlocked. And as a second phase, you can think about how do I become a regional winner? Right. And maybe the first phase is you build a billion dollar company. And if you hit the second phase, that's a $10 billion company. Uh, or more likely, if it's a billion dollar company, it's probably going to be a two or three billion dollar company if it's regional. And then as a third phase, how do you really become sort of a global leader? And I think we're starting to see companies that have expanded regionally and now are starting to really expand globally. I think, if, again, to take the example of, of Nubank, Nubank is the biggest digital bank in the world, you know, has been often quoted as having international ambitions into the US and other markets. And I think you can compare and can compete, you know, head to head with the best neobanks around the world. So that's going to be an interesting example to see. I think Wildlife Studios is another big local unicorn here that's in the gaming space. It's one of the top 10 game publishers around the world. And most of its audience is in the US and in Europe and other developed countries. And it's just a company that happened to be born and, and scaled in Brazil, but truly today is a global player in the gaming space. I think there's a couple other examples. Jim Pass is a good one also that you know developed a new innovative model out of Brazil, expanded into Europe. And now I think the majority of its growth and potentially even a, a, a huge component of its of its revenues is in the U.S. markets, so we're starting to see also these global players coming out of the region. Hopefully, now we can take a step back and dive a little bit deeper into the some of the history of the region that led to this amazing progress that you talked about. I was thinking we could center the discussion around four different buckets: technology adoption, talent, funding, and in policy. On the first point of technology adoption. LATAM has always been an early adopter of technology. We're both from Brazil, so and you know better than I do, given your history of Facebook, Brazil has always been the largest, one of the largest markets uh, for social media in the world, much higher than in usage than the United States. You've had some a front row seat to all of this. So can you tell us how you've seen this adoption curve evolve over the last 10 to 15 years? Yeah, no, that's a that's a it's a great point in terms of the early adopter nature of, of Brazil and the region, and I think also sort of the heavy user nature of Brazil and the region. Like you, uh, you mentioned social networking in particular, but it actually I think is a lot deeper. You know, p- people don't understand, I think, or don't realize how high the internet penetration is in Latin America. You know, it's, a, it's around 75% of the population in Brazil, 71% in, in Mexico, just to name the two biggest countries. And you compare that to other countries that we, we know to be very advanced in the technology sector. You know, China is around 65% and India around 45%. So you have higher internet penetration than other fast-growing developed nations like China and India, obviously smaller than, than the US and Europe, but uh, very, very meaningful internet penetration. And it's not only about the number of people that have access to the internet, but it's also the, the usage that those people have on the internet. So when you when you look at all the countries in the world, Brazil actually leads the entire world in terms of sort of hours per day that the average internet user uh, spends on the internet. So Brazil's over 10 hours a day, you know, compare that to you know seven hours in the US. And I think to the to the point of social networking, that's also the region, Latin America is also the region with the greatest penetration of, of social media. And when you look at the rankings, usually of all the social media properties, Brazil's always kind of top one, two or three. And that's, you know, Facebook, it's Twitter, it's YouTube, it's Instagram, it's WhatsApp. And it's always been like that. Lucas, to your point, you know, before there was Facebook, Brazil, when I first moved down here in 2010, and actually spanning probably you know, multiple years back, five years back at least, was actually dominated by Orkut, which was uh, Google's social network that had as its bigger biggest use, user bases Brazil and India. If I remember correctly, when I when I moved here from the U.S. with with Facebook, 
it was something like three quarters of the Brazilian internet population was on Orkut, right? So it was like just literally uh, everyone on Orkut, much higher penetration than even Facebook had at the time. And our big challenge was taking, you know, taking down a competitor that had very, very, very strong network effects and and barriers to to switching, which was Orkut, and switching them onto Facebook, which was a, a superior product. So that history is long, right? That history is, you know, a 10, 10 15 year history of being early adopt adopters, especially of communication and social tools. And I think we continue to see that today with the kinds of penetration rates and usage rates you have throughout the region. And have you seen this early adopter behavior to enable new models or enable companies to, in today's world to grow much faster in LATAM than you would expect their equivalents to grow here in the United States? Yeah, I think you you definitely see some really uh, vertical growth curves, especially for some of these new social products, right? TikTok from one year ago, I think, you know, had very, very low single digit penetration in Brazil. Now, one out of three Brazilians uses TikTok every month, right? So you do have sort of these like viral growth elements that that, that things really spread here, especially these communication and, and social tools and, and TikTok as it's grown around the world, you know, Brazil has maintained its, you know, pull position in terms of being able to show growth and, and virality. I think that there's also some interesting things when we look at some of the Chinese models, right? So China has, Chinese internet, you know, developed for, for a variety of reasons that we don't need to get into here in a very different way than, than it did in the US. And some, and some models that worked really well in China for, for different reasons, ne- never really picked up in, in the U.S. I think one one good example is uh, Pinduoduo, which is kind of a sort of social shopping commerce uh, platform in China, which is one of the biggest internet companies in in China. And that model of, of social shopping and sort of group buying never never really worked in the U.S. And now in Latin America, you have you know four or five different players that have been growing very 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 rapidly. You know, it, it, applying certain parts of that Pinduoduo sort of social shopping model. So that's an example also of Brazil being able to adopt not only, I think, technologies and products that are big in the US, but also that are you know, very viral in, in Asia, like, like Pinduoduo. Let's pivot now to talk a little bit about talent in the region, because some necessary ingredients are founders, tech talent, and maybe executives to scale companies. And how have you seen the talent pool evolve in Latin America? Talent is definitely the biggest barrier to scaling. And, and, and actually, I, I think that's actually the case everywhere in the world, right? I think that's the, the, the massive technology transformation wave and sort of digitalization of economies and societies just requires so, so many people to be able to make this happen, not only in tech companies, but also in traditional tech companies that are all becoming tech companies. Uh, and I think Latin America is, is no different. And, you know, we, we definitely see it here day to day as the biggest barrier and sort of biggest complaint that entrepreneurs raise. You know, how do I get, you know, more engineers? How do I get better engineers? And then I think as the companies scale, you start seeing the, the, the dearth of executive talent. Because as I mentioned, you know, that our technology ecosystem here is, is very recent. So there hasn't been really that many, there haven't been that many people that have scaled companies and are now ready to go and do it a second time. So if you're a, a unicorn uh, trying to hire a new CTO or head of product or head of design, there aren't really many people that have been able to grow or lead companies of your, of your size. So that's, that, that's a challenge. And I think that there's a couple of options that we, we've seen to be the, the, the most likely outcomes of, of how to solve that. One is you try to you know, train people from within and they kind of learn on the job and they scale. And I think that was, you know, how a lot of professionals in sort of the first wave of the, the U.S. internet wave ha- had to learn on the job. And now they've been able to sort of train the next generations. Or the other way is you import international talent. You either import international talent to lead those teams or to train your local teams. And I think some hybrid of those has been adopted by the vast majority of companies. Just to give you an example, when I when I started my company, Pace Urbano, back in 2010, you know, the, the role of product manager basically didn't exist in, in Brazil. So we, we wanted to have a very Silicon Valley style product driven organization. But how do you do that without product managers? How do you do that with, you know, an engineering team that is able to, you know, be a part of the leadership and sort of product development process in the companies? It was very hard to do that. So what we ended up doing was we brought most of our leadership team in those areas from abroad and had them train 
their their teams and teach them sort of the, the sort of the teach them the ropes so that they can go on and kind of do do a good job. And a lot of the people that we used to be our you know junior product managers or software engineers are now some of the heads of products and CTOs of a lot of these unicorns because they had the first cycle of of scale and now are able to go and do it you know the second time around. But definitely it's a huge challenge. I think the the other the other way that we we've seen people solving it is by trying to or the other way that we've seen companies try to tackle that problem is by trying to train more software engineers and technical talent. Just to give you one example, and, and this is kind of talking up my, my own book a little bit, you know, we invested in a company called Tribe, which, which offers technical education for people that want to do a career switch and become software engineers. They'll do like a one-year intensive course, and they'll graduate ready to become sort of a junior software engineer at a company. And they have a waiting list of companies to hire the people that are graduating, just to show how much demand there is versus the, the existing supply. So you're going to need to start seeing more and more options of people either you know, going to university and, and learning how to, how to become engineers, or going to more focused courses like Tribe, where they can go and become a software engineer and eventually should go work at a tech company. Great to hear these new initiatives to grow more mm-hmm. talent for the ecosystem. Yeah. Do you see talent clusters evolving around either companies, for example, Rappi in Bogota or Nubank in Sao Paulo? Do you think in even in this distributed world that those hubs will be important? Or in what key markets, if any, cities do you focus on? So you definitely see the alumni networks and the talent hubs. And I think that that's everywhere in the world, right? Any company that's successful and scales to thousands of people almost necessarily will have had great people that went through there and sort of were a part of that story and, and learned a lot. And those people are going to continue on with their careers. They're either going to become founders or they're going to become the leadership of the next batch of companies. And and Latin America is, is no different. And I think that the first wave maybe of those of those spinoffs were probably people that had worked at Mercado Libre in Argentina, right? Primarily in, in Buenos Aires, in, you know, in Brazil, you had the B2W companies, so Submarino and a bunch of these other e-commerce players that were that were that were big and and sort of had a lot of people that kind of grew up and, and learned within them and then kind of left and went to build the next the next generation of marketplaces and, and e-commerce companies. I think nowadays all of the the big unicorns you you, you listed Newbank, but there's obviously you know the the lofts and Quintondars and Wildlifes and a bunch of these other companies where you know naturally if you're if you're making the career choice to go to an early stage company and take that kind of risk you're probably a fairly you know risk prone or or person that's very open to risk in terms of wanting to be entrepreneurial be entrepreneurial minded a lot of those people end up being founders or being sort of the founding team of of new companies so we we do see definitely in Bogota a lot of the rapid alumni. We see in Buenos Aires, a lot of the uh, Meli alumni in Sao Paulo, folks coming out of Nubank, going off and starting starting their own companies. And, and, and a lot of those people are the people that we try to monitor as an investor, right, and stay close to so that when they're ready to go and make that career switch or sort of jump into a sort of a founding team, that we can be there sort of alongside them to, to back them and invest in their companies. I see the talent hubs in the region are right, the big the big population hubs. And we, we actually did a, a survey with heads of HR of, of HR of over 500 different companies in, in Latin America. And we asked them where they saw the greatest concentration of technical talent. And interestingly, Buenos Aires was listed as the number one city. So you still have you know that massive player, which is Mercado Libre, been around there since the late 90s, but still the biggest technology company in the whole region. Actually, Mercado Libre it has the highest market cap of all companies in Latin America. So it's not just tech companies. And that continues to be a great school for new technical talent. And then it's followed by Sao Paulo, right? Which is the biggest population center in Brazil, Mexico City, again, biggest population center in Mexico, and then Bogota and Colombia. So those are really sort of the four big centers of technical talent. And with with that, uh, entrepreneurs. Great. And how do you think about the rise of distributed teams and how that's impacted the startup ecosystem? In Latin America, this is this is a great question because it definitely made made it easier for companies to to hire, right? Because you don't only if you're based in São Paulo, you don't only have to hire in São Paulo. You can hire throughout Brazil, maybe throughout even the the region. And we and we saw this actually in a in a recent survey we saw we, we did with some HR leaders saying that a lot of the the new hires were from different countries, right? I think a third of people that left companies or were hired from companies were from a different country. So you do see sort of this like regionalization of talent. 
the the question that's still open and I think is is a big threat for for the region is this is obviously not being able to hire talent from other countries is not is not exclusive to Latin American countries. So U.S. companies that have you know revenues and dollars, bigger market caps, deeper pockets can now also start hiring from the region. And we've definitely started to see more and more U.S. companies reaching out to top talent in the region and letting them continue to work from you know, Buenos Aires or Santiago or Sao Paulo or Mexico City, and oftentimes paying them salaries that are two or three times what they would earn locally because of the currency differences. Uh, and I think that that's, that continues to be a pretty big a pretty big threat to the region where you already have a low supply of great technical talent, but now you're actually competing at a, in a global scale for that talent with companies that are, that are you know, much more well-funded, much bigger, much more evolved that are in the US or China or Europe. Right. Well, we certainly hear that from founders that they love the time zone advantage of working with team members in Latin America, right? Or South America. So it's great. So Julio, to talk a little bit more about funding, as you mentioned at the beginning, it's been a record year by every metric, right? We've seen VCs pour more than $15 billion so far in, in more than 500 deals in the region. And another impressive metric is that almost half of that money has been deployed exclusively in fintech. We've certainly seen that here at Village Global, where all of the companies that we've backed in the region this year actually are fintech companies. What makes fintech in LATAM specifically so exciting right now? Yeah, so you know you can't talk about tech in Latin America without talking about fintech, right? And I think fintech benefited from the first wave, which was a lot of you know banks going digital and payments going digital. And, and some of the core banking features like uh, you know credit cards and current accounts and even investment accounts all going digital. That was probably the, call it 2015 through 2019 or 2020 or so. And now you're starting to see probably the second order of the fintechization of, of the economy. And I think that that's other you know, financial services and financial services infrastructure, right? Because now that every company, whether they're a tech company or a traditional company wants to offer fintech services and can monetize fintech services in the in the in the form of lending in the form of wallets in the form of different financial services they now need the infrastructure to be able to offer that so all these comp- technology companies that that came up to provide fintech infrastructure are booming with the sort of fintechization of the of the economy and i think that the the, the reason why that happened is twofold. I think one is structurally there was great concentration of you know market share with a few big players. So was, you could you could describe sort of the banking sector or financial services sector in countries like Brazil, but but it's it's very similar actually throughout the region as being much more oligopolistic. Right, you have like eighty percent con- concentration in the top three or four players, very very high rates of return on equity. So in other words, you know very very profitable banks that were charging you know very high fees, uh, and oftentimes pairing that with experiences that were subpar when it came to the the customer standpoint. So you're talking about profitable businesses that are not necessarily treating their customers in the way that the customers deserve to be treated. So obviously ripe for disruption. I think that historically, what was the issue was that you know distribution was gated by the fact that you needed bank branches and building bank branches was expensive. Once the bank became digital and the bank branch became your cell phone, that distribution barrier and that investment barrier went away and anyone could have a bank in their pockets and could have an experience the, at the level that, of which they demanded and could pay fees that were reasonable in terms of what they, you know, of what, of the types of services they got. So you were getting things that were 10x better for a 10th of the price. And clearly you started to see why, why it has sort of this exponential growth in financial services and the migration of the consumers looking for something better. So that was one thing was sort of this structural element of what the market structure was like, the the lack of, of competition that existed. And then the second thing is it's part of the consumer demand, right? Consumers, you know, were active on the internet. They had expectations of what good customer service, what what good UI and UX look like, what a good uh, consumer banking product app looked like. And, and those weren't really being delivered by the traditional banks. So when people came around and were able to satisfy that consumer demand, those consumer expectations, and providing it much cheaper and in a much better way, I think that's that's why everyone flocked to uh, flocked to flocked to the fintechs. 
Right. Another thing I hear a lot from US-based investors is that there has been a potential to leapfrog a lot of the financial infrastructure since a lot of these companies are a lot of these sectors are going digital for the first time, as opposed to when here in the US, we've actually seen a lot of you know financial services getting digital over time in the early 2000s. How, how do you think about that? And, and how much has that contributed to the acceleration of fintech in, in, in Latin? That, that, that's an interesting point. I, I, I do definitely think that that contributes to it, right? That a lot of this infrastructure is getting built by the first time. So it's getting built the right way and it's getting built by tech companies. It's not legacy code or legacy systems sort of being adopted to it, which I think is a lot of what happened in the US. So that's that's a great point. And I think that that contributed, one, to the opportunity to become that infrastructure layer and for companies you know, there were, you know, software companies to be able to provide that. And those companies were, were very valuable, but also when you build an infrastructure layer that is much more efficient and much more open and much more accessible to new companies, that in and of itself actually is the fuel for new companies to be able to innovate and to grow. So you have not only the, the core companies that are, are the enablers becoming very valuable, but you now actually enable, you know, an order of magnitude more startups to be able to start up with, you know, fintech as a service, banking as a service, embedded lending, all those kind of things that we've seen really explode in the region. And what are other sectors that don't really have the same spotlight as fintech right now, but you're particularly bullish on? You know, we one area that we've been spending a lot of time on, and that we we think have 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 some characteristics that are that are similar to what we saw in in banking and financial services five or six years ago is is healthcare, right? Where you have a lot of consumers, in this case, patients that are that are unhappy, right? They only you know twenty to twenty five percent of people have uh, private health insurance. The sort of public health system is is lacking, and people are very unhappy with it. And people need healthcare, right? Like as people get old, they're going to need more of it. As I think chronic illnesses grow in the region, people are going to need more and more of it. And I think as the as the middle class has more and more disposable income and is willing to pay for a better lifestyle and pay for healthcare, the consumer demand is there. And now you're able to start delivering a lot of these healthcare services in a much more low cost and scalable way. Like I think that the the easiest example and most obvious example is just the rise of telemedicine. You know, before the pandemic, telemedicine was actually illegal in Brazil. Like just by by law, you were not allowed to offer a, you know, physician was not allowed to offer a consultation via whatever, a a digital platform. And now now you are out of necessity and we're never going to be able to put that genie back in the bottle. And I think that that kind of stuff of you take something and you make it accessible to everyone at a low cost, a highly scalable way, I think really disrupts the way that I think that the core, you know, way that people get get access to health and get access to healthcare changes. And, and I think that, that that simple example, I think that there's dozens of other ones throughout different parts of, of the hospitals and diagnostics and uh, therapeutics that are all rising extremely fast. So when we when we look at the concentration that exists in hospital systems and diagnostics, I think in accessibility of care, in health insurance. And I think that the high level of dissatisfaction that consumers have with those and the potential for technology to really pr- provide that product that is you know, 10 times better at half the price, we think that over the next five to 10 years, you're going to see some pretty massive companies growing in the, in the healthcare space. And that's somewhere where we've been spending a lot of time and trying to you know, back some of those companies that we we think are the future. I think also that fintech has sort of that second wave of innovation that's going to come, and I think that that's not only I think a lot of the embedded lending and embedded fintech examples. So we've we've now invested in you know two marketplace companies, both of which their their main business model is by offering sort of a lending product, right, to enable uh, faster and, and easier marketplace transactions. So it's is it a marketplace? Is it a fintech? Who knows, right? I mean, all these all these lines are becoming blurred and we don't necessarily care what the definition is. We just care that it's a better product for the consumer and it's going to have the kind of adoption that that, that you'd want to see in a, in a big sustainable business. And the other part in fintech that we think is this next big wave is around insurance. So uh, a similar wave of deregulation and sort of pro-innovation legislative agenda is happening 
in insurance in the same way that the regulators locally supported in, in fintech and financial services about five years ago. And we think that that's going to enable a lot of innovation, a lot of experimentation in the insurance industry. And insurance is massive. Again, it's very analog. You're still filling out forms. The customer service is not good. Products are not tailored. It's just not up to the sort of 21st century standard of what we believe a good consumer experience is. And I think that people and companies that are technology-centric and consumer-centric are going to be able to build those new products and are going to be able to disrupt insurance. So we've we've made already two investments that are in the insurance space. Uh, we've made sort of healthcare investments. We're trying to also put our money where our mouth is and think about where the market's going to be for, for those big sectors in, in the next five to 10 years. And when, if at all, should founders in the region bring U.S. and global investors to their cap table alongside local investors? It's a great, it's a great question. And I think that it depends on each company and the founders, right? I think that when you when you go out to raise money, there's two things I think you should think about. One is the money you need, and money is a commodity, and everyone has the same money, and you know you just gotta you know fund the business and fund it in the best way possible. The other thing is, what are your main barriers to scaling and being successful, right? Like, what do you need help with? And then I would go out there and try to find investors that can help you you know, address those barriers, whether it's help with hiring, whether it's help with, you know, you know, strategy, whether it's, you know, a coach or, or mentor to be able to discuss things with. And oftentimes it's, you know, depth of understanding of a sector or a business model. And that depth of understanding and that expertise may be by a local investor that has maybe invested a lot in that sector, but it could also be in a global investor that might have invested in similar models across the world that has seen most likely challenges and the, the likely pitfalls that you might be seeing sort of in your own future. So try to think about what's the, what's the need that I need to solve and who is the best person to solve that need. I think if your needs are very local and require a local network or local knowledge, a global investor is probably going to add little value there. If they're much more understanding and expertise about a model or about a sector, maybe it's about you know raising you know subsequent rounds that you may want to you know raise from international investors, and you use sort of that stamp of approval that's going to help you do that, or maybe people that can open those doors for you. Then maybe that's coming from an international investor. To give you my own sort of my own answer, and the way that I did it was when I started my company, I always sought to have for every single round, about half the round coming from local experts and half the round coming from global experts. Because I think if you go all in on one side or all in on the other, you're always going to be missing something and always having sort of a complementary group of investors there that can bring the local expertise, but also maybe the global network, I think is always a, a great balance. Now, Julio, wanted to touch on the fourth pillar that we talked about being pol uh, policy and political risk. So having grown up in Brazil, I remember very clearly back in 2015, the early days of Nubank, I was talking to a friend of mine about this new digital bank. Uh, and I remember very clearly talking to him that, look, this thing is not going to work because if it ever does work, the government is just going to step in and nationalize this thing, which is kind of a crazy thought for someone that grew up here in the United States. But if, you, if you've been in Brazil or a place in South America for the last 20 years, that sounds very real. And yet, this has changed. It doesn't sound like something like this could happen in Latin America today. So how do you look about political risk and why and how has this evolved over, over the last decade? Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right to some extent. So I, I, I do think that you know, developing markets in general have more political risk and sort of macroeconomic risk. And that's just, um, that, that's just history. Right, and that's you can't argue with that. I, I do think that international investors overweight the political and local risk compared to their own markets. Right, like everyone was hot and excited about China, and we just saw sort of the Chinese government pulling the biggest IPO in history two days before. Right, so there's things all look good and they all look stable until until they're not. Right, I think the you know in the in in the U.S. we've seen sort of Different, different flavors of political turmoil, right? How, when would you have expected the capital to be stormed, right? So there's, you know, nowhere is, you never really know what, what you're going to get in the future. But I, I agree with you that in Latin America, our history shows that we are more likely to be unstable than other markets. So I, I agree with that. I think just the degree might be, might be the, the main source of, of, of difference. And I think that today, when you look at, I think, technology, the technology sector in particular, and even just the macroeconomy in particular, the government, the local governments today, and I, and I can speak to Brazil where, where I am, 
I think really, really value the the role of entrepreneurship and private enterprise and 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 the role that that plays in economic development and economic development plays in their own sustainability as political leaders. So, you know, the government has learned to be uh, very pro-industry, pro-private sector. I actually think that the government and the regulators in in Brazil are actually some of the most pro-innovation in the world, right? When you think about the central bank in Brazil, is really sort of a leading example of pro-innovation and pro-competition when you compare it to peers around the world. So that's changed a lot. I wouldn't even say necessarily in the last 10 years. I think, you know, over the last 10 years, it's already been fairly fairly stable, to be honest, even with all the political drama we've had. I, I, I don't think there's ever been any risk of things like, you know, nationalization and sort of that that level of political risk, but definitely much more, uh, much more stable than maybe you had in the 90s when you had maybe some more questions around sort of long-term stability. Unfortunately, that hasn't been true for every country. I think Argentina is, you know, constantly in and out of turmoil. Venezuela is, you know, completely off the deep end. But countries like Brazil are, I, I feel, quite, quite stable and will continue to be that way even through down economic cycles as we had back in 2014, 15, uh, and that period. And it looks like is likely to be in the next couple of years. And even through political crises, you know, we had our own impeachment, you know, much like, much like elsewhere in the world. And we saw that, you know, the institutions here were strong enough that private sector was, was always protected, sort of the, the, the rule of law was upheld. So I, I feel confident about sort of the long-term stability of the region. And I think that the kind of tail risk of Brazil going off the deep end and becoming Venezuela is really, really very small. And you mentioned that these governments, they actually quite like the entrepreneurship landscape in, in their countries today. To what degree, if at all, have we seen some sort of enlightened policy coming from these governments and regulators that helped to bring about this current excite, exciting startup movement that, that, that we're seeing? Yeah, we, we spoke, we touched a little bit about, upon you know, the fintech opportunity. And I think that one part we, we, we didn't get into is that historically, part of the reason why you had a, a somewhat oligopolistic setup of the, of the incumbents was partly because of some of the legislation, I think some of the evolution of you know, banks going under and being consolidated and being helped out by the government. So it, it, the, the legacy and the history is where, 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 we, where we were. And I think the regulator, namely the, the Central Bank of Brazil, recognized that more competition was necessary. And it was necessary for, for the good of the consumer. And the central bank started removing regulatory barriers. You know, first it was in, in the payments uh, space, you know, breaking up actually a duopoly that existed in sort of payment processors, and then actually encouraging more and more competition. And I think that opened up the space for, for new entrants. I mentioned the IPOs of uh, Stone and Pagasuguru. These were two companies that were able to grow uh, much because of this uh, pro-innovation and pro-competition agenda that the central bank ushered in about 10 years ago, you you saw also uh, you know other rules that were pro-innovation. I mean, in the past, you weren't able to you know open up a bank account if you didn't go into a branch. Now you can do sort of a fully digital you know bank account opening, and that's and you know that was part of the the regulator saying it's important to have digital banks. This is the new way of of doing business, and that again sort of that helps companies like New Bank and. You know, C6 and Neon and and Bocupan and all these other players that are that ha- that have sort of their their digital their, their digital offerings. And I think as we we look forward and we think about sort of some of the new frontiers in in fintech, I mentioned already insurance. The sort of the insurance regulator now has sort of an open insurance agenda that's all about pro innovation and opening up and and encouraging new models of insurance companies to come up. And I think when we look at crypto, which is sort of maybe even on the on the edge of innovation. You've already started to see the, the Central Bank of Brazil recognizing that crypto and DeFi are the future. And they've said our role here is to help the Brazilian system sort of play nice with these technical innovations, right? It's like we're not going to ban them, we're not going to go against them. They've already talked about sort of the digital real, right? Which is the sort of crypto version of the 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 the, the local currency. And they've really embraced with open arms, you know, o- open banking and a lot of the deregulation that's been fueling this kind of innovation and, and, and growth. Fantastic. Now, as we get close to wrapping up here, it would be awesome if we could make both the bear case and, and the bull case on the future of LATAM. So let's start with the bear case. If the future of tackle in LATAM doesn't turn out uh, to be as exciting as many people believe it could be right now, why do you think that would be? 
what do you see as the risks for the ecosystem? Yeah, so, so the, the bear case is always r- reality versus expectation, right? And I think when you think about expectation is that the growth that we've seen in the last five years will continue for the next 15. And that's a little bit of the sort of the growth trajectories that the market has priced into the, the overall sector. And I think of the companies in particular. And in order for that growth to happen, you're going to need a lot of talent, right? I mentioned the biggest bottleneck is going to be talent. And one thing is for you to bring on 10,000 people into the tech sector, maybe 15,000 people into these sort of cutting edge tech companies. A whole other thing is for you to bring on 100,000 or 200,000 people, which is what we're going to require if we're talking about a 10-year horizon. And if you can't graduate enough technical talent, software engineers, or those people are getting poached and moving abroad or working abroad, that's going to become it's going to become a bottleneck, right? Companies are not going to be able to scale, they're, or they're going to have to scale slower than expected. So it's really what we're talking about here is that the, the digitalization of the economy is going to happen. The real question is how long it's going to take, and whether it continues to grow at whatever it is, you know, twenty percent or thirty percent, you know, annual growth rate, or whether it's ten percent. That's the bear case, right? It's for you to under deliver on the growth projections but that the genie's out of the bottle and the world is going to become digital and Latin America is no different. I think that that's inevitable and I don't think there's a bear case to that. Fantastic. So if these trends continue or even accelerate, could you paint us a picture of what the future of Latin America could look like in five to 10 years and how its role in the world could change? I think it's a great question. It's one that we thought a lot about when we started our fund and when we thought about the opportunity, right? You have to think about even my own decision, kind of voting with my feet I was until two years ago living in San Francisco, you know, an entrepreneur there, you know, closed up my apartment, left everything behind, decided to move down to Latin America and commit to be here for the next 10 to 20 years. So I very much believe in the long-term opportunity of technology here. And I think I voted with my with my feet and with my time and with my money. And the reason for that is when you think about, and, and we sort of developed this uh, index that we call sort of the digital transformation index where we try to compare the, the total market cap of public technology companies for each region versus the GDP or adjusted by the GDP, just so that it's kind of proportional. And we, and we looked at this for the last 20 years and we looked at it for all over the world on an annual basis. And when you look at countries like, like the, the most penetrated you know, technology com- country in the world, you know, the US, you're talking about you know, 50% penetration last year, this year, potentially even sort of 70% penetration when you think about sort of that, that tech penetration. But even when you look at China, you know, China has, you know, a 30% index when you compare the market cap of its tech companies versus its GDP, or India at 14%, right, when you think about the market cap of its tech companies versus its GDP. When you look at Latin America, we're at 3%, right? And again, you know, the, the innovation that technology and software brings it's not exclusive to developed countries, right? There's no reason that technology and digitalization is not gonna happen all over the world. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. So the fact that we're only at 3%, I don't know if that 3% is gonna go to 70% like the US, but I definitely think it has the potential of reaching the 15% that is India or the 30% that is China. And when you talk about sort of 3% becoming 15 or 3% becoming 30, and you're talking about sort of almost like a 10xing of the value of technology companies in the region. You're talking about a you know a trillion dollars worth of value creation that's going to happen. So it's a lot, a lot, a lot of value that's going to be created. And I think the second part of your question is sort of what's the time frame? And the reason we looked at this historically year after year was actually to try to think about what does the slope of each of these curves look like, and where where is each of the, each of these countries, right? So when we looked at the U.S. The U.S. is approximately 10 years ahead of uh, Latin America, and it's about three years ahead of China. So if you think about Latin America catching up to China, probably talk about the next seven years is probably the sort of time frame that you talked about. This is, you know, sort of a little false precision. So it's probably really five to 10 years that you're talking about. And that's probably a good $500 billion of value creation that could be created in the next decade. And if you think about it getting a lot closer to the U.S., because all these markets are growing, when you think about a 10 to 15 year horizon, that's when you start creating sort of trillions of dollars of value. And that's why, you know, we have a long-term view on this. You know, we don't think it's overnight. We don't think it's over the next two years, but we definitely think it's coming and we think it's going to be huge. Love that index. Let's get really tactical now. What advice do you have for founders pitching you? 
what what and the advice I would did the, the advice I would give to founders pitching me is the same that I would give to founders pitching any investor and I think it's just to be to be authentic and to be genuine and to and to sort of lead with your story right I think that investors want to know what what motivated you to start the company sort of what the origin story is sort of you know being 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 a founder and being an entrepreneur it's just really really hard right you need a lot of drive a lot of determination you need to be able to hit your wall your your head against the wall for you know 10 plus years so you know i and i think a lot of investors want to see that you really are motivated by something that's much more than just sort of a quick win or a quick return and that you really want to build a lasting independent company that's going to be one of the big companies around in, in, in the region. And I think that your motivation and who you are and the story, I think, is, is very critical. I think the other part that's important, and I think your story and the company's story ties into that, is ultimately kind of what your vision is. And being able to kind of tell the story and communicate in a cohesive and compelling way the long-term vision of what you're building and how you're going to get there and why this is important for the world, I think is just, is just critical. That's most likely the, the single most important factor that we consider when making an investment decision is, is the founder's vision and their ability to communicate that vision because their ability to communicate that vision is what's going to enable them to hire the best people and keep those people motivated, you know, raise, raise capital that they're going to need to expand, close the, the most important customers and sort of continue down that path of compounding over the decades to come and building sort of the, the next generation of lasting companies. And I think to be able to do that, you have to be genuine and I have to be authentic. I think it really has to sort of come from the heart and come from your story and, and the investor has to believe it. And, and you know, if, if I'm not being sold and I'm not getting excited about the vision, probably a lot of other people are not gonna get excited by it. So that's, that's the first thing is just be yourself, be authentic, tell the story, share the vision. I think the other part is, you know, know your numbers. You know, I, I at least am a very sort of numbers or analytics driven investor. And I think a lot of the best investors are. So I think you want to really understand the machine that makes up your business and your business model, right? How does it scale? How do the unit economics look today? How are they going to look at scale? What are the big challenges? All that kind of stuff around traction, your, your user cohorts, your client cohorts, all that kind of stuff you really need to know, I think, inside and out and, and hopefully all by heart and really understand how they all interact with each other and sort of how this is all one big system and a big machine that you're building, which is the company. So I want to obviously see those numbers and see that that traction is good and the company and the company is healthy. But I also want to see that you really understand and you can think you know, quantitatively about what the real levers are of growth and scale and, and, and eventual competitive advantage. So how, 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 do, how does this machine eventually build a competitive moat that enables you to have you know, disproportionate market share and disproportionate margins when you are sort of a big scaled company. And Julio, thank you so much for all your thoughtful answers. And people who want to reach you, what's the best way to get in touch? I think the, the best way to find out more about us is to go to our website, go to atlantico.vc. I think there you can find out a little bit more about the fund. I think you can find our LinkedIn page and different ways of contacting us via LinkedIn and Twitter. And I think probably the best way if you want to get in touch with us is just try to find someone that we know, someone that we invested in, and try to find a warm intro to, to get introduced to us because we always love meeting new entrepreneurs and, and people that are working on great things. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was, it was great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.